Well, hey there. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Edinburgh Elementary. Uh, my name is Jeff. I'm one of our community leaders here at this local fellowship that call themselves Clarity Church. Um, as you might notice, our uh, lead pastor, Phil, is not here this morning. He and his family are out in California uh, spending some time for their spring break. Um, but who needs that when we have 45 and partly cloudy here? So uh, last week when Phil was here, he uh, jump-started our brand new series, Better, Jesus is Greater. Um, and so this week, I have the opportunity to lead us through part two of that series. So we're going to continue on here today. Now, uh, I know it's been a long time since I've been up here, so not everyone here has heard me speak, and not everyone here might know me uh, incredibly well. Uh, but if you do know me well, uh, if you know me well enough, uh, you know that I'm the kind of guy that doesn't really have a problem uh, sharing. Um, and what I mean by that is I, I would like to consider myself a pretty open book. Um, now, that doesn't mean that I share things that you know, other people have shared with me in private. It just means that for myself, I don't consider myself to be a very private person. And so um, you know what that means is I'll be honest about my marriage. I'll be honest about you know, being a new dad, what that's like. I don't mind talking about uh, taboo topics or things that you're not supposed to talk about. Um, I don't mind talking about my personal life or my family or my experiences, my upbringing. Um, and I'll even uh, share a lot about my opinions and my beliefs. I'm not shy about any of that. Um, I'll tell you about my faith. I'll tell you about my strengths. I'll tell you about my many more weaknesses. I'll tell you about my struggles and my frustrations and my doubts. And uh, I'll share this with just about anyone who asks because I like good conversation and sometimes, in order to have good conversation, you have to be the one that goes first. And I also think uh, that being a person who's open is, it's good. I, I believe in transparency and vulnerability because I think it's good for us. I think it's healthy. Uh, so there's not much out there that I'm not willing to talk about. But, and there's always a but, there's one subject uh, that I prefer not to talk about with most people, but it's okay because it only comes up all the time. Um, so you'd think I would get used to it by now with how often it comes up, but, but still no, still awkward, still uncomfortable. And I will say that in the process of writing this message, it's forced me to think about this topic a lot more, um, and it's forced me to think about you know God's plan, God's will, His glory, and all of this in my life, um, which is helped me to get over much of what I was feeling. Um, I, I will say that I'm in a much better place about it now than I was a week ago, because uh, at some point you got to be able to practice what you preach, right? And so uh, I'll, I'll still be honest, regardless of all of that, it's still a very sore subject for me and just uncomfortable. So you're probably wondering, what is it? What is this conversation? What is this topic that you're struggling with? Uh, well, the conversation usually goes like this, and maybe some of you have had this conversation with me. Don't worry, I'm not holding anything against you. But the conversation usually goes, oh, so Jeff, uh, where are you from? Oh, I was, I was born and raised in the Chicago area. Oh, Chicago, well, what brought you all the way up here to Minnesota? Uh, well, I say the beautiful weather. No, I say I, I went to the U of M. And they're like, oh, what did you study at the U of M? Uh, well, I studied kinesiology. Kinesiology, what the heck is kinesiology? Um, oh, it's a study of human movement. I, I wanted to be a physical therapist afterwards. That was my undergrad, so kinesiology. Okay, so physical therapy, I get that. Yeah, yeah. 
So what do you do now? Well, I drive a concrete truck. And at this point, most people go, oh, oh, okay, yeah, sure. Um, and they're usually confused because they're not sure how one thing led to the other. Um, and to be honest, I'm still confused about it sometimes. And so people, they want clarification and they want to know how I came about this path, uh, but they don't want to be rude about it and they don't want to make me feel uncomfortable. So I usually just have to jump in and then tell the whole story and, and do my best to make it as coherent as possible for them and how I ended up where I'm at. And so, you know, just for me, it's just kind of awkward. Talking about work for me is just kind of uncomfortable because it's not really an area of my life that brings me a ton of joy. And it's not my work itself that's hard to talk about. I don't mind talking about that. It's just that the journey is uncomfortable. Like, I, I came to Minnesota to study engineering, and now I'm doing something completely different in an unrelated field. And uh, that can be kind of hard. And so it's hard for me to tell my story. It's hard for me to tell, yeah, it's, hard, it's just hard in general to tell a good story when, when you don't have an ending. And so in my story, you know, I have this intro. Um, I have, you know, rising action, building tension. But I don't quite have a resolution or a conclusion to it yet. And so when you don't know the end of the story, uh, it's kind of awkward to share it with people. And of course, I'd love to tell everyone a great story about God's goodness and his plan and his providence in my life and how everything worked out well together for, for good and uh, it was even a better situation than I could have even ever have imagined. And I'm able to tell that story in a lot of other areas of my life, but this is not one of those areas yet. And maybe one of these days I will be able to tell that story, but for now it's just still uncomfortable. And, you know, I guess compared to the expectations that I had for myself about my work or what I would do for a living or just my calling in general, my current reality just kind of seems to fall a little short of that. Now, again, I don't, I don't need anyone to feel bad for me or to pity me. My, my family and I are doing just fine. Uh, but still, I, I can't help but feel doubt and frustrations at times about this and you know, I've done a lot of things since the 10 plus years since high school, uh, but my wife can still attest to this. Like, I still have these conversations. Am I doing the right thing? Am I in the right field? Should I choose a different career path? Should I go back to school and just start all over again? And I get frustrated at God, wishing that he would make things just a little bit more clear for me. And then, of course, you know, I think about all those promises that we hear about in the Bible that people often quote. They'll say, you know, trust in the Lord and he'll direct your paths. Or he has plans for good and not for evil. He wants to give you a hope and a future. You know, he works out everything for the good of those who love him. And I hear things like this and I think to myself, okay, all right, God, I I'm still waiting here. When are those things going to happen for me? You know, I'm still not sure about my path. I'm still not sure about my future. You know, I'm 28. I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. And I can't help it because sometimes I doubt God's promises for me. And that usually leads me to start doubting his love for me. Now, I don't know if anyone else can relate. Uh, maybe you've been through a similar season or you're currently in a season where you find yourself doubting God's love for you. Well, if you are, you have some company. Now, of course, I don't know what you're going through specifically, but I don't think I'm being too bold in saying that all of us in this room at one point or another have struggled with doubt. 
And the first thing that we have to realize is just that. Doubt is extremely common. And the reason I think doubt is common is because, at least from an earthly perspective, there's a lot of reasons we have to doubt God and doubt his love for us. So what are the things that we doubt about? So I have, you know, a couple of things uh, on the slide here, um, you know, finances, physical health, relationships, emotional and spiritual health, or spiritual health, yeah. And of course, maybe there's more categories you can think of, but just for the sake of brevity, I chose four that I feel like I hear about a lot, um, and so I feel like they might be the most common. Uh, maybe you have others. Uh, but if you look further into each category, I think we find some common pain points. So to start, let's look at one that no one's ever worried about ever, uh, finances. So first thing, you know, you wonder, you know, am I ever going to find a good job? Am I ever going to be able to afford a good home in a safe neighborhood? Am I ever going to be able to get a reliable car? Am I ever going to be able to start and maintain a successful business? Am I going to ever get out of this insurmountable amount of debt? Am I ever going to have enough money to like make ends meet, let alone save for retirement? Um, or maybe you are retired and you're wondering, is my money going to last? And maybe for you, it's something else. Maybe it's your physical health or the physical health of a, of a close loved one. And you just wonder, you know, yeah, there's just a lot up there. Uh, how long is my health going to last? Am I ever going to be healed of this uh, chronic pain um, that I'm going through or a loved one is going through? Or are they ever going to get healed of this illness? Or will our lives ever go back to normal before all this health stuff started coming up? And how are we going to get through this? And, and why me? Why, why my family? Why are we the ones going through this when everyone else seems to be going okay? And then we have relationships. Um, some of us struggle with the relationship that we have with ourselves. Are we ever going to find love for ourselves? And because we don't love ourselves, it's hard to love the people around us. Maybe we're single and we've been waiting for God to bring the right person into our lives and we're wondering, are we ever going to find a spouse? Maybe you are married. Are we ever going to be able to have kids? Or maybe you have a broken relationship with someone close to you. Maybe it is your spouse. Maybe it's one of your kids, a parent, uh, a friend. You just wonder, God, am I ever going to have a restored relationship with this person? Or maybe you find yourself in a transition or a new season, and you're wondering, am I ever going to find good friends or a healthy community to surround me? And then for others, it's our emotional and spiritual health that causes us to doubt. We wonder, am I ever going to feel contentment in my life? Am I ever going to experience fulfillment in what I'm doing? Am I ever going to find my calling or am I just going to aim, uh, wondrously aim for the rest of my life? Am I ever going to get healed of this anxiety and depression that's been bothering me for years and years? And God, I don't feel close to you anymore. I don't know what's happened. Am I ever going to get my spiritual life back on track? You know, for most of you, um, I'm guessing there's one thing or another that resonates with you and uh, for some of you, you got like a bingo across the board, and that can feel pretty overwhelming. But if we boil these down further, I think we find a common thread, a common theme in all of this. Because when we're doubting God in these areas, what we're really doubting is his provision. We're doubting his ability to provide for us. Like, God, when are you going to provide me with that job? When are you going to provide healing? When are you going to provide me with community and friends? And it usually doesn't 
stop there because when we doubt God's provision, we begin to doubt his love for us. So what are the consequences of feeling this way? What happens to us when we're doubting God's love? Well, I think uh, first we feel disconnected from God. He doesn't feel like a loving father to us anymore. In fact, he starts to feel distant and impersonal and strange and foreign. And we don't experience the Holy Spirit's fruit in our life. We're not overflowing with love, joy, peace, kindness, and the like. In fact, uh, we feel the opposite. We feel jealousy and bitterness towards others because they have what we want. And so we feel resentment towards them and resentment towards God. And if it hasn't happened already, this is where our mental health begins to fail. We become overwhelmed with the anxiety of, you know, how are things going to ever work out? Will they ever work out for me? And then we become oppressed and crippled with depression because we're not happy with how our life is going right now. And we know we're not supposed to feel this way, so then we start to feel dirty and guilty because of our anxiety and depression, which only further compounds itself and sends us spiraling deeper into even more anxiety and depression. And it's a vicious cycle. And then because of that, we stop doing the things that we know are good for us. You know, at this point, we maybe stop praying and talking to God because we think it doesn't work or that he can't hear us. Or we stop reading God's word because it's become a chore. And so we start to push people away who love us the most. And maybe it's because we're embarrassed of how we feel or maybe it's just the easy way out just to not see anyone altogether. And in my situation, it was just easy for me to avoid certain topics of conversation instead of actually dealing with it head on. And so then we find ourselves isolated. And in this state, I think as as believers, for those of us who follow Christ, we, we carry a little bit of extra guilt in this situation because we're thinking, you know, God, I've... I've been a Christian for X amount of years. I've been a Christian for this long. Um, I'm not supposed to be feeling this way, right? I'm I'm supposed to be feeling joy, right? But what if I let people know? Like, what if people really knew what was going on inside of my mind? What if they really knew what was going on inside of my heart? What would they think of me? And so, as we're alone, we start to lose hope. And instead of living uh, a blessed and victorious life that we have in Christ, we, we believe we're cursed. We feel defeated. We feel alone and unloved. I don't know about you, but I don't want to feel this way. I, I hate feeling this way, and I have felt this way before. And so how do we get out of here? How do we deal with our doubt, and where can we look to for hope? Well, I want us to look at the life of Abraham. Uh, Many of you know him as Father Abraham, who had many sons, and I'm actually one of them, and so are you. And so for the sake of time, we can't read all the scriptures concerning Abraham's life right now, as much as I wish we could, but I highly encourage you to go on your own and read about his life, you know, starting in Genesis 11. But we're going to jump to Genesis 12, verse 2. You can turn there in your Bibles or go there on your phone. Otherwise, we'll have it on the screen. And so just a little bit of background. Before God changed uh, Abraham's name to Abraham, he was known as Abram. And so in this passage, Abram is 75 years old. He's married to Sarai, who is 10 years younger than him. So she's 65 in this passage. 
Uh, so we're going to start in verse 2. God makes a promise to Abraham saying, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I will give this land to your descendants. And so this is the first time we see God uh, promising to make Abraham, excuse me, Abram a nation with his many, many descendants. And, you know, for Abram, it sounds like a pretty good deal for him. But the problem at this point is that he has no son of his own. And at 75, the outlook for him having a son with Sarai is kind of bleak. And so you can imagine that he has his doubts. But, of course, this comes to no surprise to God. So, again, three chapters later, Genesis 15, God appears to Abram again and restates his promise in verse 1. So Genesis 15, 1. Do not be afraid, Abram, for I will protect you and your reward will be great. But Abram replied, O sovereign Lord, what good are all your blessings when I don't even have a son? Since you've given me no children, Eleazar of Damascus, a servant in my household, will inherit my wealth. You've given me no descendants of my own, so one of my servants will be my heir. Now, it's clear that Abram's been sitting on these doubts for a while. Um, And at this point, of course, he's still childless. And we don't know how many years have passed between what we first read in chapter 12 and what we're reading now in 15, but we know that he is older uh, than 75, and his chances of fathering a child um, are actually getting slimmer. And so, uh, and again, for the sake of time, we didn't read it in chapter 13, but uh, it says that there, uh, Abram was very rich. He had a lot of silver, gold, and livestock. He's wealthy, and God's kept him safe from danger and harm and from his enemies, and God even promises again to keep him safe. So God's blessed him in many other aspects of his life, but for Abram, it just doesn't seem to matter because he doesn't have the one thing he wants the most, a son. So understandably, he voices his doubts and frustrations to God, uh, and God responds in verse 4 of 15 saying, no, your servant will not be your heir, for you will have a son of your own who will be your heir. Then the Lord took Abram outside and said to him, look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. And Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. So after expressing his doubt, what is God's response to Abram? Does God condemn Abram? Does he scold him? Does he even make him feel remotely bad for expressing his doubt? No. In fact, I think God does quite the opposite. Um, Like a loving father, he reassures Abram. He redirects Abram. He quiets him, and he reminds him of his word that's already been spoken. Now, oftentimes, I I think we're afraid, nervous, or awkward when talking about our doubts. Um, And that's not just with other people, but I think also with God. Because sometimes when you have a problem with someone or if you have a conflict with someone, you tend to avoid that person. And when we find ourselves doubting him and in conflict with him, I think we tend to avoid God. And maybe it's because... You know, we're not sure how to talk to God about it. Maybe it's because we're afraid uh, of his judgment, that he would be mad at us or that he would push us away. And so we just kind of hide from him. But I think that God's response to Abram should show us 
the true fatherly, compassionate character of God. And it should show us that God can handle our doubt. Now, that doesn't mean that he fixes everything we want in the time that we want it, but I do think that this passage models for us two things. Number one, we don't ever have to be ashamed or guilty because of our doubt. And number two, in the midst of our doubt, we can still have intimacy. We can still have relationship. We can still have conversation with God. And again, we don't have time to read through Genesis 16, so I'm just going to summarize in that chapter. Abram and Sarai, they, they kind of get impatient with God's promise. Some time has passed, and they still don't have a son. So they take matters into their own hands. Uh, Sarai believes the only way she can give Abram a son is to have him sleep with her servant, Hagar. And of course, Abraham agrees to this, and between them, Ishmael is born when Abram is 86. So 11 years after God first appears to Abraham with a promise. But God, again, appears to Abram again in 17. And this time, Abram is 99. And we read starting in verse 4 of 17. This is my covenant with you. I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. What's more, I'm changing your name. It'll no longer be Abram. Instead, you will be called Abraham, for you will be the father of many nations. Now, this sounds pretty familiar. We've read this a couple of times before. Abram has heard this, excuse me, Abraham has heard this a couple of times before and, and must be thinking that God is talking about Ishmael. But later in verse 16, God specifically addresses Sarai, who becomes Sarah, and says that she'll be the mother of many nations. But still, Abraham is doubtful. So we see in 17, then Abraham bowed down to the ground, but he laughed to himself in disbelief. How could I become a father at the age of 100, he thought. And how could Sarah have a baby when she is 90 years old? So Abraham said to God, may Ishmael live under your special blessing. But God replied, no, Sarah, your wife will give birth to a son. You will name him Isaac. And then in chapter 18, God speaks directly to Sarah and gives her the exact same message and she, like Abraham, has the exact same response and laughs at this news. But of course, again, God is not phased or surprised by any of this and asks, why did Sarah laugh? Why did she say, can an old woman like me have a baby? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return about this time next year and Sarah will have a son. Now, like I said before, I, I don't know what you're going through specifically, but I do know that many of us in this room are carrying some heavy, heavy burdens. And that is causing you to doubt God's love and provision for you. You know, maybe it's your health, maybe it's your marriage, your relationship with your kids, your job or lack thereof. Maybe you're still not sure where, what your calling is, what you're supposed to be doing with your life. And you just didn't expect things to turn out the way that they did. And so you're tired and you're exhausted and you're doing everything that you can to hold it together, but you just want to give up. Now, I, I can't guarantee that all your problems are going to go away overnight, because scripturally, there is nothing that promises that. 
But I do think through this passage, God may be trying to speak to us. He may be trying to speak to you. And he's asking you, is there anything too hard for the Lord? Now, finally, after 25 years, we read in Genesis 21, the Lord kept his word and did for Sarah exactly what he had promised. She became pregnant. She gave birth to a son for Abraham in his old age. This happened at just the time God had said it would. And Abraham named their son Isaac. Now, after reading the story, I think it's easy for us to assume that Abram turned Abraham is the focal point of this story. And I think it's easy for us to think that uh, this story is about how Abraham, uh, despite his doubts and maybe being a little impatient, uh, he was faithful and patient enough, and now in the end, God has rewarded him with what he wanted the most, a son. And then we insert ourselves in this story as either Abraham or Sarah, and we think that if we too are faithful and patient, we'll get what we want from God. And I think that we would maybe be partially right, because I don't think there's anything wrong with being faithful and patient, and, and I do think that those are virtues that, that God does reward. But if that's the main moral that we get from this story, I think that we would be almost entirely wrong. But why wouldn't we see it that way? Why wouldn't we assume that this story revolves around Abraham? Well, I think it's the same reason that we often assume that our lives revolve around us. I think we've been conditioned by our society, our culture, our environment to think this way. Our society lends us to believe that life is about us. Everything is about us. Everything is for us. We are the protagonist of our own story. Everything starts with us and ends with us. We're at the center of it all, and it all revolves around us. And when we're at the center of our own story, it's no wonder that we start to doubt God. I think we judge God based on how well he fits into our definition of love and provision. So of course, of course we doubt his ability to provide for us and question his love for us because God isn't always following the script that we handed to him. And we think we know what's best for our lives, so we plan it according to the way that we see fit and just kind of expect God to go along for the ride. And then when things actually do go according to our plan, we credit it to our, our hard work, our perseverance, and then we pat ourselves on the back for a job well done. And then, then just like an athlete who just won the finals or the Super Bowl, we give a token thanks to the big man upstairs for helping us out with our victory. But God, God will not be relegated to playing a supporting role in your story. And I think it makes us mad. And I think that makes us frustrated and doubtful towards God. But Hebrews 12 tells us that Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. That means that he not only wrote your story, he's currently and actively directing it in the way that brings him the most glory. And like I've shared about my own life, 
I've doubted God because he didn't work things out for me the way that I wanted him to. You know, after high school, I, I had a plan for my life. I had my story all laid out neatly and nicely, and it was a story that I was proud to tell. And instead of surrendering my pen to God so that he could write my story, I was just kind of hoping he would sign off on the one that I had written myself. So when it comes to your story, who is holding the pen? I think for Abraham and Sarah, it took them a while, but I think they finally understood that regardless of what they tried to do, even when they tried to grab God's pen and take matters into their own hands and have Abraham sleep with Hagar to have Ishmael, I think they finally realized in the end that God was always writing the story and that they never had the pen to begin with. And God wasn't done. He was still writing his story concerning Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac. And unbeknownst to them, God was going to use their story to foreshadow the ultimate moment of God's story. And so we're going to go to Genesis 22, and we're going to read starting in verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. Take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. The next morning, Abraham got up early, saddled his donkey, and took two of his servants with him along with his son Isaac. Then he chopped wood for a fire and for a fire for a burnt offering and set out for the place God had told him about. Now, do you want to know something kind of cool about this passage that I found out? Um, you know, I know it's only the first book of the Bible, but this is the first time so far in the Bible that love is mentioned. And God uses it to describe the relationship, the emotion felt between a father and his son, his only son. Think about that. And if I was in Abraham's shoes, I would probably start thinking, would, would God really ask me to sacrifice my son, my only son, the son that he promised me? How would I become this great nation? How could I have any more descendants if I kill the only one that I have right now. But unlike me, Abraham doesn't hesitate or stall. It says that he gets up early in the morning and sets off. So we read on in verse 4 of 22. On the third day of their journey, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Stay here with the donkey, Abraham told the servants. The boy and I will travel a little farther. We will worship there. And then we will come right back. Now, I don't think that Abraham was trying to um, contradict what God had told him to do. And I don't think that he was, you know, lying to his servants. I, I truly believe in his heart that he thought God was going to do something, something in, on his behalf, even if he didn't know what it was. So I think he spoke those words out in faith. And so reading on, Abraham, so Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders while he carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them walked on together, Isaac turned to Abraham and said, Father, 
Yes, my son, Abraham replied. We have the fire in the wood, the boy said. But where is the sheep for the burnt offering? God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son. Abraham answered, and they both walked on together. Now, unbeknownst to Isaac, uh, he's carrying on his shoulders the very wood that he is going to be sacrificed on. And unbeknownst to Abraham, he foreshadows something God will do, not just in a couple moments for Isaac, but also 2,000 years later for the future children of Abraham. And so reading on, 22, verse 9, when they arrived at the place where God had told them to go, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. Then he tied his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. But at that moment, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Abraham replied, here I am. Don't lay a hand on that boy. Do not hurt him in any way. For now I know you truly fear God. You have not withheld even your son, your only son. Now, at this point, we don't know exactly how old uh, Isaac is, but uh, I think most scholars agree that he's actually a young man, not a young boy, and he's maybe in his 20s at this point. Uh, But we do know that he was old enough to at least run or resist his elderly father, who is in his hundreds at this point, But he didn't. He submitted to his father's will. And he was obedient up until death. An innocent son to be sacrificed. That's what God asked for. And in his just willingness to do that, Abraham proved his love and devotion to God. Because in order to sacrifice your son... Your long-awaited and promised son, your miraculously conceived son, your innocent son, your one and only son, the son whom you love, who had to carry up the wood, the very wood that he was going to die on. Now, if you were willing to do that, that would require a lot of love. If we read on in verse 13, it says, Then Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught caught by its horns, in a thicket. Say that fast. Caught by its horns in a thicket. So he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in place of his son. Abraham named the place Yahweh Yaira, which means the Lord will provide. To this day, people still use that name as a proverb. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Now, Abraham could have named this mountain anything that he wanted. God never even commanded him to name it anything at all. So he could do what he pleased. You know, he could have named it after the fact that he passed God's test and proved his faithfulness and devotion to God. He could have named it after Isaac. But I think at this point in the story, Abraham clearly knows that this story has never been about him. And so what he actually names it is very telling of the journey that he's been on. You know, in an instance where he once would have doubted God's provision, he can now confidently say, the Lord will provide. I think for Abraham, it took a process of following God over time to demonstrate that kind of faith. 
And we actually read uh, in Romans 4, starting in verse 18, this passage is concerning Abraham. Paul writes, even when there was no reason for hope, Abraham kept hoping, believing that he would become the father of many nations, for God had said to him, that's how many descendants you will have. And Abraham's faith didn't weaken, even though at about 100 years of age, he figured his body was as good as dead, and so was Sarah's womb. Abraham never wavered, believing in God's promise. In fact, his faith grew stronger, and in this, he brought glory to God. Now, often for us, I think it's usually about what we're getting or what we're achieving. But for God, I think he's more concerned with who we're becoming. And when we demonstrate strong faith in God, when we actually believe in who God says he is and what he's done, it brings him great glory. So who is God and what has he done? Well, unlike Father Abraham, God the Father did sacrifice his son his long-awaited and promised son, his miraculously conceived son, his innocent son, his one and only son, whom he loved, who carried up the very wood that he would die on. And like we read in Abraham's story, like the ram that was stuck in a thicket by his horns, Jesus' head was stuck with a crown of thorns. And like the ram that was sacrificed in the place of Isaac, Jesus was sacrificed in the place of Abraham's children, of which I am one of them, and so are you. Thanks, Mark. You're a good student. (laughs) Now, if I haven't made my point uh, clearly enough, uh, Jesus says this himself. John 15, 13, there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. So if you find yourself in a season where your life just doesn't measure up to your hopes and your dreams and your expectations, if, if you find yourself in a season where your trust in God is falling and your worry is rising, if you find yourself doubting God's ability to provide for you and you're doubting his love for you, just don't look any further than the cross. Like I said before, for God, Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his son was the ultimate sign of commitment and devotion. And likewise for us, Jesus' death on the cross should be the ultimate display of love and provision. So I just want you to walk away with this. You know, you never have to doubt God's love for you or his provision for your life because he gave his one and only son for you. And through it all, until the very end, God is committed and devoted to you. So what do we do? In light of everything we just talked about, how then shall we live? I think number one, like Abraham modeled, talk to God about your doubt. Pray to him. God can handle it. He wants to handle it. Ask him, God, how do my present circumstances fit into the story that you are, that you are trying to tell? You know, I'm confused by all this. It doesn't make all it doesn't make any sense to me, but please help me to see how this brings you glory. 
Number two, share your doubts with your community. That means you have to be part of a community. And if you're not part of one, join one. It's not too late. You know, let's be friends. Let's be family. Let's help carry each other's burdens. Let's be honest about our doubts. And as brothers and sisters, as the family of God, let's together submit our doubts, our anxieties, our cares, our worries, all before our Father in heaven together. Don't go on living life alone. And lastly, as I mentioned before, remember the cross. Look to the cross. Cling to the cross. Why else would God give his one and only son, Jesus, to die on a cross if not for his great love for us? I think we just have to remember, God is 100% committed and devoted and madly in love with you.